Hello, and welcome to the Hunting Science Podcast, where we talk about the science of hunting. I'm your host, Mark Lindbergh. Our goal for this podcast is to educate listeners about the how and why things work the way they do in hunting in the outdoor world. Uh, welcome to a special episode of the Hunting Science Podcast. It's um, a pleasure to work, welcome four guests today. We're actually going to do this in two different episodes to talk about uh, banding. Um, particularly for waterfowl, and uh, we're titling these episodes Talking Bands 1 and 2, that's a catchy name, but hopefully we can um, help listeners and viewers, because we're recording this via Zoom too, if you prefer to watch it, um, about the value of banding for science, and this, this is an easy sell for us. I mean, of all of the things we do in science, banding waterfowl particularly is a as a direct way that we can show how that information is used um, in science and to the benefit of hunters and hunting. Just a few statistics to get you thinking about that. And I realize that um, some of you will just be listening to this. So when we show these graphs that I'm gonna reference on screens, we'll make sure we talk through it as well. So if you're just listening, you can know what we're showing. Um, but to, since 1960, just to give you an idea, uh, we've banded some 14 million ducks and some 6 million geese to date. And hunters have encountered those bands, mostly hunters, there's some others, and reported almost 4 million recoveries of those bands. This is from, from the uh, Bird Banding Lab, which is the national depository for all this information. So Hopefully you can appreciate how just that alone is clear evidence of the value of banning for science and hunters. The other thing that you may have um, that you recovered and it tells you where it was banded first. Yeah, the other thing that hunters get is when they a band that they harvested is information about that bird and where it was banded and how old it is and, and other um, maybe specific information. But today what we're going to do is take that a step further and go into detail about these stories and how those band recoveries and in our case recaptures and recitings of those birds are used to advance our knowledge about them. Uh, before we dive into that, I want to just quickly give you um, a little bit of some tidbits about what's called longevity records, how long birds have lived that have been banded. Are you guys seeing a screen that shows longevity for, for various species? Yep. yep. Okay. Yeah, and again, we'll make this link available to listeners and viewers, but this is from the Bird Banding Lab again, their website. And if you look at it, it's organized alphabetically. Uh, roughly, actually, um, by species of waterfowl. And if you glance down through this, you see it starts with whistling ducks, gets into geese. And you see that um, it's incredibly, it's incredible how long some of these birds are living. So right here, Greater Lake Fronted Goose, showing 34 years, seven months uh, longevity. It's one of the longer ones I'm familiar with. And that's pretty impressive if you ask me. Um, but as you go down through this too, I'm, I'm was kind of struck by 
or I'm getting my annotation down here by the longevity of some of these duck species too. So going down through geese still, there's some emperor geese at 20 years, lesser snow geese, 30, uh, 30 years, eight months, black brant, 30 years, three months, and then just scrolling down through this. And again, you could spend time with this as you choose to. Uh, but here's some black ducks, for example, 26 years, five months, 26 years, four months, mallards, 27 years, seven months. I mean, I think that alone is pretty incredible story. And again, science, but think about it for some of these species like uh, snow geese, let's just go back to those and Rocky Rockwell's gonna talk about those today. Um, they've done the spring and fall migration for 30 years and survived it. Um, besides hunters, there's obviously natural causes of mortality and they've been able to navigate through that for some 30 years. So hopefully you can appreciate the the stories we can tell because we've interacted with these birds almost on a yearly basis. And that's the stories we wanna to try to share with you today. So with that as background, I was gonna um, start with Jim Sendger, Dr. Jim Sendger. He's, he's joined us on previous podcasts. You might remember some of the uh, talk we had about adaptive harvest management and the work we've done in the Yukon Delta of Alaska to talk about river site. Uh, we also have Dr. Robert Rockwell, Rocky, Rockwell, Dr. John Eady, and Brant Mikesell, who's a, a former student of mine. And we'll get into more detailed uh, introductions for them, but I was going to let Jim start and um, talk about mostly Brant, I, I assume, because he was supervising the work on uh, Black Brant for 36 years, Jim, um, 35. Until you took over, so yeah, a couple of years ago, so yeah, 30 yeah, and that's by the way, my background here is a, a brant that we banded in 2018, and that's Jim sitting on the ground in the background that um, we put on a tarsal tag that's on the right leg of the bird that that is um, this bird unfortunately got the band nut, um, but um, you know, it's these three character codes sometimes end up that way, and it's of course got the traditional band on the the left leg. But Jim oversaw the project working on Black Brandt on the Yukon Delta for 35 or 36 years thereabouts. And Jim, just roughly, how many Brandt did you band in that time? Uh, it's 40,000 plus. I mean, not me personally, but that's what we've put on um, over the years. And uh, I don't know, the, the recaptures and observations are in the hundreds of thousands now. Wow. So throughout the range, which I'll talk a little about. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what else is in your background? Just quickly, Jim, give us your resume there. Uh, well, uh, I mostly, obviously, as you said, worked on Brandt um, uh, every summer in Alaska, at least a week, usually a little more than that since 1984. Um, I've had a few projects on ducks. I've collaborated on a few projects on snow geese and uh, not so much field work, but nutritional work with um, USGS scientists. Um, 
I did my PhD work on cackling geese also on the Yukon Delta. Uh, so that's a part of the world I've been going to since the late 1970s. Um, and then since uh, I've been in Nevada since 2001, and um, in addition to the Alaska work, I've been pretty heavily involved in sage grouse research here in, in Nevada. Um, and dabbling in other projects. Uh, Chris Nikolai, a former student of mine, um, started a, wood, a nice wood duck project here that uh, just came to an end, actually. Um, that ran for, I think, 13 years, something like that. Um, trained some students. And um, so that's been uh, my efforts um, since well, the late 1970s, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and Jim just retired, as he said, and I, I took over leadership of the work at the Talk Oak River, which unfortunately was interrupted this past summer because of COVID, but we're hoping to get back in the field and get going again in 2021 and beyond. So hopefully you'll be seeing some of these banded brand come down the flyway, Pacific flyway in the future. So Jim, what um, what have you learned from your brand that uh, are some of the most interesting stories? Well, I think I've got I got one scientific story and then one personal story, and um, just a little background for the folks that don't live on the coasts and hunt brant or know about brant. Um, you know, they're known as sea geese. Uh, in fact, they weren't, even though they're technically geese. I think um, they used to be. You know, when people talked about waterfowl, to be geese and brant, as if they weren't geese, um, and that's because they're they're pretty distinct, you know, they're really only, at least historically, this has changed quite a bit in Europe and on the East Coast, but the, the black brand on the Pacific Coast are still pretty traditional in the sense that they're really only using terrestrial environments um, in the summertime. You know, they clearly nest on land and, and their goslings are grazing um, green vegetation in the, uh, throughout the summer. But then throughout the rest of the year, they're, they're, they're in marine environments. They're in nearshore environments uh, where they're feeding on eelgrass primarily. Uh, and the black brant that I work with nests throughout the Arctic and subarctic uh, into central Russia um, on the Russian Arctic coast and then um, as far east as Victoria Island in Canada. Um, with concentrations on the North Slope of Alaska and then the Yukon Kuskokwim Delta in, in Southwestern Alaska. And then from there, the birds travel to uh, the Alaska Peninsula where they stage for a few months. And then in recent years, large numbers of birds have been wintering there, but historically most of the birds travel to Mexico, about three quarters of the population historically was in Mexico in the winter time. Um, most of those birds on the Pacific coast of Baja and uh, a thing that makes Brant, uh, well, they're interesting species to hunt, but um, because it's a saltwater hunt typically, um, but a nice feature for studying them throughout the year is that even though they're in these marine environments in the, uh, outside the breeding season, each day at high tide, just following the high tide, the birds come out of the water. Um, they preen, some places they're acquiring grit, uh, but that means we can see their legs. And um, 
that allows us to track birds or to follow birds uh, throughout the annual cycle by um, observing these plastic bands. I brought a couple of examples. These are ones that were actually worn, so we took them off of the birds, but you can sort of see that. Um, and uh, these bands can be read from up to about 400 yards with a fancy spotting scope. And so um, scientists uh, throughout the winter range um, have observed these birds. And I believe that Mexico sightings uh, of birds on the terminus of their um, migration are in tens of thousands, um, work done by folks at the USGS Science Center. Um, as well as observations throughout the Pacific Flyway, an active effort by um, folks in the Canadian Wildlife Service uh, in the Strait of Georgia in the springtime has thousands of observations of these birds. Um, and there have even been a few at, at uh, Eisenbeck in the fall um, many years ago. Um, so we can use these observations to figure out where the birds were uh, and that'll be my little scientific story for the day. Um, we used uh, observations uh, in winter by folks from um, the Alaska Science Center um, to determine where the birds had spent the winter. And then because we can observe these same birds on the breeding grounds, we could show that where the birds spent the winter had an important influence on whether they nested the next year. So birds in poor, we will just call them poor quality wintering areas with less food available were much less likely to be observed as breeding birds in the subsequent summer. And then uh, interestingly, birds that, could, that successfully bred had greater access to higher quality wintering areas. And this fits with a lot of work on geese that shows that birds that are in family groups, geese stay together in family groups throughout the year, uh, are socially dominant to individuals without young and to unpaired individuals. Um, and that's longstanding work that dates back to my advisor, Dennis Raveling um, in the late 1960s and even some earlier work. Um, and it's been confirmed in European Brandt by French researchers showing that family groups were socially dominant in winter flocks. And we think that what's happening is it becomes a sort of a virtuous cycle in, in that if you can breed successfully, um, you then are dominant to failed breeders and non-breeders that allows you to gain access to superior wintering sites. And then that perpetuates your successful breeding the next year and so on. And we've been able to, um, using experiments on the breeding grounds to basically produce a similar result. So, um, we did some experiments about a decade ago where we manipulated the brood size of Brandt and then looked at how that affected subsequent reproductive performance. And what we found was surprisingly that um, if we reduced the size of their brood or took away all their goslings, and we always fostered these goslings with other parents, you know, a lot of folks might think, well, gee, that's you know, that means they didn't have to do as much work and therefore they should be more successful the next year. And what we got was exactly the opposite of that. So birds who, for whom we reduced their broods or took away their entire brood had a much lower likelihood of breeding the next year than the birds that had produced the sort of most common brood size. And 
it fits with our other observations that family groups are really important in these birds. Um, and secondarily, uh, I think from a conservation and management perspective, of course, it really reinforces the importance of particular wintering areas and high quality wintering areas uh, to fuel um, the, and provide the nutrients that these birds are gonna need for breeding in the next year. So, so were you able to look at differences between birds wintering in Mexico versus uh, Alaska? We have not done that. And part of the reason, of course, is that we don't have observations of known individuals yet from wintering birds in Alaska, at least. As yeah, time. that's a harder group. Yeah. But what do you make of that increasing trend of birds wintering in, in uh, Alaska? Not to get off the tangent too much. Is that um, climate-driven or... Uh, yeah, I think it is climate driven. And David Ward from the Science Center, who's a uh, colleague of uh, Brant's, published a paper a decade ago now, I guess, um, showing or documenting this increase of birds wintering in Alaska and attributing it to climate change. Um, and we see sort of shorter term signals that tell us the same thing. So um, in El Nino years, when the oceans warm, Brant tend to shift their winter distribution northward. Um, and uh, particularly in the uh, 1998 El Nino, which was an incredibly warm event in the um, mid, -lat well, say 20 degrees north, sort of the Baja latitudes, um, that the water got warm enough to trigger a, a major uh, die off of eelgrass and substantial shift of birds to the northernmost wintering area in Baja, which is about um, four hours drive south of San Diego. And then many brand actually shifted entirely out of Mexico into more northern wintering areas. Uh, and we saw a big dip in reproductive performance that year associated with the decline in the quality, availability of food for these birds in the winter. So yeah, I think this shift into Alaska, you know, it's you know, whether it's how much of it's carrot and how much of it's stick, in other words, you know, how much of it's being driven by deteriorating environments for the birds in the south versus the fact that winters have been warmer in Alaska, so it's allowing birds to remain there. Um, Eisenbeck traditionally or historically would freeze up in the wintertime so the birds couldn't feed, and that's much less the case in recent years. Yeah, uh, yeah, those are, those are questions and answers you couldn't get without banning, so that's really needed. Jim was avoiding this term that's uh, sometimes used individual heterogeneity, which is a fancy way of saying that there's members of the population that are, well, superior, I guess, in terms of reproduction and survival to other birds. And um, it's only through banning and long-term banning that we've been able to tease some of that out. And I was able to work with Jim actually on a, uh, some research looking at this individual differences in fitness, as we call it, of, of Brandt, and it's pretty amazing what we've been able to tease out that there's these super birds that year after year, despite conditions, seem to find a way to be successful. And um, they contribute a lot to the, the health of the population compared to birds that obviously aren't able to do that. So Yeah, we had one female, uh, one of the first birds I banded in 1986 that uh, nested up until she was 29 years old. Um, yeah right near our camp, actually. So we had a nest for her virtually every year that she nested. And so that's a bit of the science. And I think, um, 
you know, and we mark these birds to learn about them, right? But uh, I think another thing a lot of folks in the public don't maybe appreciate as much, although we've had lots of folks visit us for banding and, and so on, is that doing what we do has a really important, important to us anyway, um, personal aspect to it. I mean, we do this work because we think it's important, but also because we like it and we like the people that we work with. Um, and a story that arose out of our banding, and it's got um, some sad components to it, but it's a remarkable story. And this was, um, so I'd like to relay that. Uh, it, it's also an amazing story. Um, and this was a, an article written by Chris Nikolai, who was a student on the Brandt Project uh, in the um, early 2000s, and then now works for Delta Waterfowl. He worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service for a number of years in between. Chris wrote this article for Cal Waterfowl, California Waterfowl in, the fall, in their fall 2017 issue. And um, it's a story that kind of ties together the community um, and is really a poignant story. And that, so um, these bands that I mentioned that we relied on to understand how wintering affected breeding um, were put on by, by folks from USGS and um, in the late 1990s, a, a young woman named Marnie started working on that project in Mexico and she spent winters in Mexico for a number of years. Um, she really became an ambassador for Brandt research because she was a person that checked hunters when they came in with their bags for the day, uh, for bands, um, Wade measured the birds. Um, she was well known to all the guides there, all the hunting in, in Mexico is is uh, required to be with guides um, and uh, was well known to a number of the hunters as well. And um, one of these uh, fellows, Phil Jebbia, who um, is an avid brand hunter, he lives in the Los Angeles area, uh, hunts numerous weekends a year in San Quentin, which is the northernmost wintering area. It's where the most folks go to hunt brand in Mexico. Um, got to know uh, Marnie, this, this young gal, um, quite well. And um, she became so um, integrated into the community, she actually bought a house there and um, lived there six months of the year. And much of the data that we used in that uh, analysis I mentioned was generated by Marnie and her coworkers. And she uh, died suddenly in, in 2006. Um, it was a shock to everyone that knew her um, and uh, including uh, Phil Jebbia and um, some of the local folks built uh, some memorials to her in the area, the guides that she had gotten known so well. And uh, Phil was really, um, they'd become quite good friends and he was um, really affected by her death and the way he chose to memorialize her was to um, contribute funds to the Brandt project each year to buy uh, plastic tarsal bands which we um, you know we hired a guy in Illinois to make those for us um, every year for a long time 
And in the, he started this in the summer of 2007 in um, memory of Marnie. And um, it just happened that the first year that uh, we put bands out that Phil had paid for, um, a good chunk of the bands, about half of the ones that we put out that year were black bands. So I, I showed you some white bands earlier. Um, but these were black with white characters. And the first character in the sequence was a heart. And so they became kind of symbolic, you know, the black um, to the local folks, because over time, hunters began to shoot some of these birds. And um, so the guides were seeing them. And uh, of course the heart reflected the feelings that folks had had for uh, Marnie and the black represented the loss. Uh, that everyone had experienced. And uh, Phil Jebbia um, and his wife who hunted down there frequently actually eventually uh, shot some of these birds on two different occasions. Um, they each shot a uh, brant with what became known as a Marnie band. Um, uh, once in 2009 and another hunting trip in 2012. So then uh, in the meantime, uh, a professional photographer, Dave Steinick from Michigan uh, began visiting to talk. Okay, he came 2009 for the first time, first of four trips. Uh, so incredible photographer. And um, Dave has taken thousands of photographs of all the waterfowl, shorebirds, uh, at the Tutaco colony, and um, including a lot of photos of banded brant. And uh, it, it just so happened that on his first trip to the Tutaco colony in 2009, um, he happened to photograph a male, really handsome male with a Marnie band that was heart SA. Um, and uh, <clears throat> you know, I was in his uh, file of photos. And um, a few years later, Chris was going through Steinmick's photos to um, look for some photos that he could use uh, for a fundraiser for Nevada Waterfowl Association. And he happened across this photograph that Dave Steinmick had taken of Heart SA. And thinking about Phil Jebbia, Phil got the photo, I mean, Phil, Chris got the photograph printed and framed and sent it to Phil. And Phil was really touched by this uh, effort of Chris's. It was really thoughtful. Um, and that occurred in 2014. In, uh, and Phil has this photograph in his office in Pasadena. Um, he sees it every day. In 2017, Phil called Chris and uh, left him a voicemail. And um, Chris said he sounded emotional in the voicemail. And um, so Chris called him back. And <clears throat> Phil had been hunting with his wife. Again, this was um, uh, 2017 hunting season. They'd been out. Uh, without having much luck. Um, their guide picked them up and moved them to the middle of the bay. They shot uh, two birds each. 
And when the guy came back, uh, Phil said they were ready to go in. They'd had a good hunt. And the guide said, no, no, I'd like you to try this one other spot. Uh, it was a shore blind. <laughs> and um, so they agreed. He moved them there. And they had about 40 minutes of pretty quiet, no activity, really. And a group of birds came by the decoys. Uh, Phil says about 75 yards out. And he said two of the birds made a hard turn and came right into decoys. And he and his wife each shot one of them. And the guide went out and picked the birds up, yelled back that, hey, Phil, you've got a Marnie band. Um, so when he, he, that was pretty nice. He said, you know, that was the end of their hunt. And he said, it was like Marnie was saying hello to us. So Phil returned to his office and realized that the bird he shot was the one that he had a photograph of hanging on his wall. And, and, you know, you think about, like Chris says in his article, um, you know, it's, I mean, about 5% of the brand population is marked. So to shoot a banded brand is not a super big deal. Um, it's probably a bigger deal to shoot a banded bird for which you contributed the funds to pay for the bands. That's a little rare. But to shoot a bird that you have a photo of on your wall is just unbelievable. And as Chris says, impossible. So, you know, I'll leave it to the folks to interpret the meaning of this. Phil's still wondering what it means, but um, I think it really adds a poignant sort of personal aspect to the things that we do. Um, even though we're all, you know, hardcore scientists who I think a lot of people think we don't have any heart or emotion, but, um, that story to me is still just amazing. And I thought that um, the audience for your podcast that haven't heard it already would um, think it was a special story. No, it is, Jim, and thanks for, thanks for sharing us, sharing that. I, you know, I do think people think of us as in the sciences being a little, little too cold, but yeah, it's, we've, we're a small group of people that work together and Marnie's definitely missed and thought of every time we continue to see her bands, but that connection is unbelievable in the thousands and tens of thousands of brand that Phil might have ex been exposed to on those trips. So it's, uh, yeah, that's really, really a great story. You got anything hey, to wrap hey, up with Jim or? Um, hey, Jim, just can, can I make a comment, John Edie here? You know, I think that story also symbolizes for me sort of the contributions uh, the folks that you know carried on Marnie's tradition and you know paid in you know paid in to keep the banding program going, keep the science going. So I, I have kind of a, a saying I, I talk to my students about: as we take from the marsh with gratitude, and we must give back with generosity. And I think that just sort of you know epitomizes that whole sort of that sense of you know the the effort going into funding the banding and then you know the return at the end of the day. Pretty spectacular. No, I would agree. And I would just say Phil's still involved. Uh, he's still in touch with Mark, um, still uh, generously donating funds. And um, yeah, anyway, I agree. Yeah. Hey, John, since you were, uh, um, uh, we're talking there, you mind taking over next? Um, we'll, we'll displace Rocky one, one 
for one more speaker here. He's got seniority though, I think. But uh, yeah, I was kind of liking the idea. I was in the lower half of the the age. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't happen to me very often these days. Uh, and I certainly could could never usurp Rocky, uh, but but happy to happy to jump on. Well, I, I yeah. tell a little bit of a different story. So I'm I'm mostly duck biologist. Uh, I've done a little bit of work with some of my students on geese, but not a lot. A uh, bit of background. Uh, so I'm Canadian. Uh, Actually, just got tenure at the University of Toronto and gave it all up to come to California to accept the uh, the Dennis Raveling uh, waterfowl endowed chair. Um, Dennis was was Jim's uh, major professor and certainly a huge legacy in the in the goose world and the waterfowl world. So that was a, that was a real honor. So I'm here at UC Davis, uh, 25 years, um, mostly working on ducks. Um, my PhD was on golden eyes, barrels and common golden eyes from British Columbia. So sea ducks, cavity nesting birds. Down here in California, most have been working on uh, wintering habitat, um, working mallards, pintails, but also this long-term project. We've started off mostly as a teaching tool for our students on wood ducks. You know, they're, uh, like Jim was saying, uh, Chris Nikolai just over the hill here in Nevada had a great project going. We've had a 20-year project going. They're great for students. They're easy to, you know, catch them. They're in nest boxes. Uh, you know, you can't break them. The students can band them, learn all the all the techniques we try to teach them. And the nice thing here in California is, is you know, they start breeding in February down here. So we have students in classes right till the end of uh, the end of well, middle of June. So we can take them out and get them, you know, during classes involved in banding and doing all the measurements and teaching them real field biology without, you know, so we don't have to go up to, <laughs> to Alaska and, you know, with our field camps, we just walk out in our backyard. But one of the things, you know, so, so Jim talked about, and I'm sure Rocky will talk about, Mark, you may have already talked about, I mean, with geese, it's a little bit easier. You know, banding's all about putting a band on a bird, but then you either got to recite it or recapture it, you know, right, to get that information. And from that comes a whole slew of statistics on, you know, return rates, filipatry, movement, survival, all the stuff that we need as, as uh, managers to kind of get an idea of what's going on with the population dynamics. But you got to be able to either recapture that bird, shoot it or catch it uh, or recite it. Now with geese, you can put on neck collars and the tarsal bands. Jim, Jim relayed how with the brand, you know, they'll come out uh, on land and you can actually see the tarsal bands. So you can't do that with a duck. You know, we, we put on leg bands on ducks. Sometimes you can see them, but it's, it's pretty hopeless, right? So for ducks, pretty much the only way you can get some of that information is with a, with a recap or, or, you know, a bird that shot, a band return. That's huge information. We've got a lot of those data. But we wondered what we're missing. So we ha we've had this long-term project on wood ducks going. And, you know, we typically what we'll do is we'll ban the hens on the nest. We usually wait till about the second or third week of incubation just to avoid disturbance. Well, that means we're only getting a subset of the population. So we're getting, we're getting females that have been successful. They've got a nest. Uh, they're incubating the nest. They've made it for at least a couple of weeks of incubation before we grab them. So we're only getting a subsample of those recaps. We started wondering what we were missing. We, we had a bunch of behavioral questions we were interested in, but uh, so what we came up with, and, and I'll, I'll show you here, and I don't know uh, if I should do the screen share or not, Mark, I might try for any of those folks. Yeah, give it a try. We could talk through whatever you share. Okay, uh, let me, I'll just show you here. This is a visual. So we started using what are called pit tags. This is, and I'll show you a picture of it in a, in a, in a second. Just like about it the looks size. like an oval pill, pill for those yeah, of you. It's the size of a rice grain. And then, and then this is a reader. This is an RFID, radio frequency identif identification device. So we, and, and the trick was, you know, these, these, uh, these little pit tags, passive integrated transponders, it's the same thing you put in a pet, right? You know, that a vet puts in a pet to chip the pet. So when Fido goes missing, 
gets recovered or run over, you can uh, you know you can find out it was your your dog or your cat. So we started we started doing this. So I'm going to try to screen share and I'll show you, but I'll also talk talk it through. So you guys let me know if this comes up. Is that uh, is that showing? We're seeing a PowerPoint presentation. Right. Okay. I'm going to take the real risk here, and I may have to reset this because sometimes it doesn't work on Zoom. Okay. Oh no, it didn't work. Okay. Try it one more time. Sorry, guys. This is my life as a as an instructor living in the world of Zoom. It's just a total pain. All right. Oh, sorry. Can you see that? Yep. Yep. All right. So there's a pit tag. There's the size. There's a standard sort of USGS leg band, aluminum band. Uh, the bottom graph there shows the size of a relative to a penny. So these are these are pretty small, pretty easy to uh, um, to deal with. We just inject them with a needle into the back of a bird. So here's a handwood duck. But you can, I mean, they're small enough. You can put them in a duckling. So we started tagging every single duckling and every single hen in our population. So every duckling that hatched out. And then the trick was, so this is new technology, is those the readers that I just showed you, we can put those up on every single nest site, every single nest box. And here's a little antenna and it just goes to this little reader with a battery. So from that, we can record, you know, here's just a couple of other examples. And whenever a female or a duckling goes in and out of the box, we record his presence, just like a, just like at the grocery store, basically. Uh, I'm not going to go through all this, but but so here's here's what we typically would get. A long, yeah, I'm just going to show you this one graph. These are each of the different pit tag females on one of our study sites. So these are like, you know, this would be like a leg band, if you will, but these are the females that are pit tagged and these are just their codes. So I'm showing that this graph, uh, for those of you who don't have it, it's just a just just a graph of the frequency of, of the number of times that we would have caught each female. And so what you can see for most of these females, we would have caught them one time. Some of them we catch them twice. This is in a given year. Bunch of them we don't catch at all. Then when we layer on top, oops, sorry, the RFID data. So the, the blue bars, for those of you who can see it, what I'm showing you now is the number of reads. And these are a number of different boxes for these females. It's a completely different story. We have females that are recorded on as many as 51 different boxes in a single year. And, and a bunch of females that were never caught at all that we would, we've recorded on 10, 15, 20 different boxes. There is this a statement on your uh, ability to catch birds, John? Or <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. We should have caught every single one of these birds. No, what it is is a lot of these birds, I mean, some of these birds, and here's a story, so I'll, I'll stop screen sharing. Um, just to, uh, let me just get rid of this here so I can see what I'm doing. Uh, wood ducks, as some of you may know, um, they're, they're kind of a crazy bird, you know, so they, they will, establish a nest of their own like most waterfowl do. But there's a bunch of them that will also lay eggs parasitically. Rocky knows this, he published one of the earlier papers on snow geese, they do it all over the place. Jim knows this from Brant as well, um, Mark and you as well. So, you know, they'll lay eggs in other females' nests, the brood parasites. Wood ducks are notorious for this. So a bunch of these females, I mean, some of them are prospecting for nest sites. We know ducks do that earlier in the year, or wood ducks do anyways. But so I'll tell you this one story and then and I'll sort of finish with this as, as sort of a vignette, just one example of one female. So this is a E9BAO, that's just her, the last part of her pit tag code. So she was tagged as a duckling, pit tagged in 2015 in, in a nest box on one of our ranches, Kami Ranches. She came back after that winter, came back to the same area, um, you know, within, within, within you know, several hundred yards away and she began to visit nest sites. And that first week, 
she visited over 21 different boxes with 30 different visits. The next week, she was on another 12 boxes. The week after that, nine. Her last record was, uh, was three months later. And over the entire breeding season, she was recorded on 34 different nest boxes, comprising 195 different visits. We never caught her. That was all by RFID reads. Uh, she certainly had some boxes that she preferred over others. So, and then the trick was we also had some uh, genetic techniques we were using to see if she, you know, what was she doing? Was she just exploring boxes and she didn't breed that year? So she was laying eggs in other females' nest boxes. She actually laid eggs. Well, so we had the genetics. We could tell whose kids were whose in each box. Uh, she laid eggs in four different sites that hatched. So she laid a total of 12 eggs, 10 of which hatched. So just as though she had had a nest of her own, but none of them, she didn't incubate any of them. She was in four different boxes and we wouldn't have known that. So she's, she's a female that's breeding that actually is recruited into the population and we would have missed her success entirely. Uh, and she's not alone. So there's, there's a bunch of females that easily, you know, they're in 10, 20, 30 different boxes. And then there's other females that are just stay-at-home moms and they're in one or two boxes. But it's these missing females that really caught our eye for a couple of reasons. When we did the sort of just the summary of the data that we had, we were missing about 39% of the females getting only reads by these pit tags. We okay. never caught them. Uh, and that's in, that's in terms of recruiting, recruiting uh, ducklings. What we used to do is we'd use fish tags, little fingerling fish tags. You've all used them with geese, I know. Uh, but you got to be able to catch the bird to read the tag, right? You put a little web tag in. These are birds that we had never caught. We were getting the reads by this sort of remote uh, radio frequency technology. And, and yeah, they were recruiting. And, and from the genetics, we know they're actually, you know, laying eggs in the population. So they're actually breeding females. They're not just, they're not just young females roaring about the half acre. And, uh, and so we're underestimating recruitment. So from a management or a population biology perspective, when we actually do the calculation or the correction for that, our recruitment rates went from about 5% to almost 10%. They almost doubled. Uh, and, and that's important. Gary Hep did, a, did an analysis with Wood Ducks Back East and suggested that recruitment rates based on band recovery were not high enough to maintain local populations. There must be some other source of birds. If you bump that number up to what we're observing, you now have sustainable populations. So that's interesting from a population side. It gives us better estimates of recruitment. It's, it's just a different perspective on band recovery, uh, but instead of using leg bands, we're using new technology, radio frequency identification. The, the second and the last part of it from a management perspective is we also realize just the huge variation in the attractiveness of different nest sites and nest boxes. So here in California, um, we've lost most of our riparian habitat where wood ducks would normally breed. And uh, so California Waterfowl Ducks Unlimited, they, they, you know, this is true back east as well. They put up these big nest box programs, uh, some of which are successful, some of which aren't. And we have no idea why some birds like some boxes or some, some sites are more successful than others. With this RFID data now, we're getting huge ranges. Some boxes are visited by 30, 40 different females. A box right next door has got zero. So this provides, you know, completely different uh, stream of information to improve the nest box management, find out what boxes are attractive to birds. Maybe boxes are too attractive. Maybe that's causing problems with, uh, with too many females coming in. So it's just, just a story. It's a different type of banding technique. And I think it also illustrates how some of our new technologies are really changing our understanding of, of not only how these birds are structured, but how they're using different resources 
and uh, and perhaps even changing our understanding of their population dynamics, which is you know important to to managing the populations, sustainable harvest, etc., as well as just basic some of the natural history we've never never been able to understand. So, so that's uh, just a little example. So, could you tell from the genetic data whether those females were with this? same male or were they mating with multiple males <laughs> they're all over the place they're all over. yeah we can actually uh we don't we don't necessarily have uh, genetic samples from the males but now again that's another whole technology all the new genetic uh i mean it's just increasingly become more sophisticated with thousands of markers you can use now so you can you can infer who the dad was as well as the mom even if you don't even catch them so genetic banding is another whole banding technique if you will so yeah, what's happening is we're seeing the females are, are laying eggs in multiple nests. Females are mating with multiple males. Males are mating with multiple females. Um, wood ducks are just, uh, you know, I mean, we, we always thought they were kind of, you know, some high reproductive rates. They breed early. They have this parasitic behavior, but uh, they really have a very different social system um, than I think I would have anticipated. And I haven't kept up with that pit tag technology you mentioned. We haven't really adapted that in geese too much. Um, actually, I had some experience with it with mammals, with black-footed yeah. ferrets and bulls. Um, yeah. But what's the cost like? And, and the other limitation I recall was how far away you had to be to be able to read it. Is that improving yeah. at all? Yeah. Uh, well, so, so the trick for us was, you know, you can... Um, this technique's been around for a while. The problem was that the readers themselves were hideously expensive, like Biomark and a bunch of companies would make them. And they were like 1500 bucks a piece. We wanted to put a reader up on every single nest box. We've got them on over 200 nest sites. Eli Bridge at the University of Oklahoma came up with this, this little reader, that's 30 bucks. So to put them on 200 boxes was 6,000 and then we're good. You know, that's it. So, so that's, that was a huge technological innovation. It's just the cost, the pit tags themselves, these tags are, they're two or three bucks a piece. So, you okay. know, it costs a little bit of money. The read range, though, Mark, you're right. You have to, for this technology, you know, it works great with a wood duck because you got an antenna around the surface. They have to be within about an inch or two to be able to get a read. Okay. You go bigger with a bigger unit, but then that's going to be more expensive. Gotcha. So the, the read range is always going to be an issue. They do it with salmon, though. You know, they'll pit tag salmon, and then they've got these big, massive readers on a stream. So if you've got an area where birds are constantly coming through or, you know, coming into a bait station or something like that, you could you could get it to work. I think the technology is getting there. No, that's a great story. That's neat stuff. What's the future hold, then? What's the questions you think you're going to open up with this that you're going after? We're going, I mean, part of it was a behavioral thing. We we're trying to figure out what these crazy birds are doing. But I mean, it's the same story that you guys talked about in terms of individual heterogeneity. You know, what we see is some females are just incredibly fecund. They're incredibly long-lived. Other ones are not. I think we're seeing that pretty much. That's uh, pretty typical probably for most birds, but certainly for waterfowl. Um, we're interested in this behavior. Why are females laying eggs in each other's nests? We see that some females seem to just have a nest of their own. They're stay-at-home mums. Other females are bouncing all over the place. That could have population level consequences. And then, uh, then some of our work is just trying to tie in the behavioral biology with the population dynamics. So how much do these behavioral interactions, um, you know, create density dependent feedbacks in the population, either causing booms and crashes of these populations. And then in turn, how does our management intersect with that? So are we creating problems by putting up high densities of boxes or are we, you know, we creating, we creating sources or sinks. So we're sort of looking at that, uh, the exchange of, of um, 
uh, impacts, I guess it would be between so the behavioral interactions and the population dynamics. Uh, John, so obviously, oops, go ahead, Jim. Yeah, eyeballing your graph there, it sort of looked like birds that were not captured in a box were visiting a lot more boxes than birds that you, is that kind of, is there that sort of a dichotomy or is that just, was that? Yeah, there's no, there's no correlation, Jim. We've actually looked at that to see if there is, uh, if there's any relationship. Um, I mean, some of those birds are clearly young birds that are prospecting and we're sort of parsing that out. We've got to go through all the genetics now to see if they actually laid an egg and and then in some cases, if the egg didn't hatch, uh, you know, or if it was infertile, we can't even get DNA from it at this point. Um, but no, I, there actually isn't a correlation. Uh, we've looked at that and it's, it's, it's just kind of a scatter plot on both. So, um, you know, I think there are certainly, we, we sort of see that there, there are two types of females, we're calling them rovers and stairs. So some just seem to be mall gangs that are traveling all over the place and they do hang together in these social networks as well. So you're getting you know, it's like a group of, uh, of, you know, young, young teenage daughters, like my daughters, you know, roaring around the place together, creating havoc. Uh, and then other, and other females are just going to a few boxes. And that's consistent over time too, over years. We now have uh, five to six years of data on this. So uh, just, di you know, different, different, completely different personalities of these birds. They're, they're just like our dogs, our pets, you know, they all have their own personality. We tend to think about birds and ducks and geese as of automatons but they're clearly not that's really neat yeah it reminds me of the story back in the 80s when i worked in the prairies with mike anderson who we're going to talk to in a little bit but at the time mike Sorensen was working on redheads yeah and yeah. they lay eggs some of them lay eggs parasitically in canvasback nests and through banding more individual markers he was able to find that there were some redheads that specialized and and only laid parasitic eggs and then some redheads that laid their own nest and if I recall there was a few that did both strategies but most yeah. of them were one or the other either they laid their own nests or they laid parasitic eggs and canvasback nests. It's the same with the wood ducks you've got all three some on their own some only in somebody else's nest and some do both so and trying to understand you know sort of how that plays out what we have found from the genetics is the females that do both tend to do better both in terms of uh numbers of uh, numbers of eggs laid, numbers of ducklings hatched. Um, and now we're starting to get the recruitment rates of those ducklings to see if there's any difference there. So maybe it's a trade-off. You make more, but they don't do as well. So. That's a great story, John. Good luck in yeah, the future. I, yeah, it'd be neat to try to adapt some of that technology to other species too. It looks like the learning curve is pretty steep once you get that much information. So um, that would be neat. Yeah, we're, we're dealing with about a million reads right now. So uh, <laughs> this is, uh, it's keeping a lot of graduate students uh, gamefully locked into dark rooms on a computer screen. <laughs> well, we're going to transition back to geese here with Dr. Robert Rockwell, Rocky, as he's known to most of us. And uh, I should have let him go first because I think he is the most senior here in terms of experience. I'm curious to hear how many years he's been at snow goose research i'm trying to add it up and i think i'm at 40 but um well you're 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 a little bit short mark i've been working on them for 51 years oh my gosh okay and um i've been at the research camp at la perouse bay and the cape churchill peninsula outside churchill for 51 years this would have been 52 had the border not gotten closed um i was originally trained in canada at queen's university and i moved from there to new york where I took up a position, joint positions at the City University of New York in biology and the American Museum of Natural History as a research scientist. Uh, 
and I've been uh, working in the Arctic uh, pretty much every summer since then. I'm usually up there for two to three months at a stretch with maybe a short break in the middle of the season. Um, <clears throat> we have over that time period banded a little over 250,000 snow geese. We've had about 25,000 recaptures where we've actually caught the bird again and we're able to read the bands. And we've had about 30,000 wildlife service recoveries, uh, bands that have been shot and sent in by hunters. So it's quite a long chain of data and it's a very rich set of data. And I wanted to tell two short stories about what we've done with it that sort of contrast the things you can do with banded birds. Um, I think most people think of it in terms of, well, you can just estimate survival. And that's one of the stories I wanna talk about. But you can also learn about the distribution and the movement of the birds. And when I first started this work, um, long before any of you, well, in fact, I'm betting that a couple of you weren't even in high school, and I imagine one of you wasn't even born yet. Um, there was a very curious thing in the Gulf Coast of Texas and Louisiana where the snow geese winter. They winter from basically from New Orleans over towards Galveston, and maybe a little bit southeast, southwest of Galveston. Um, but in the, in the east, the birds are almost all blue phase. And in the west, they were almost white, all white phase. One of the first projects that we worked on was to figure out how that worked. And it's a very simple, um, somewhat uh, partially recessive gene. White is recessive, blue is partially dominant. And the question was, well, why do you have this clinal distribution along the, the Texas, Louisiana coast? And um, initially it was pretty much all blue near Louisiana and all white down towards Galveston with very few birds in the center. And as we started draining Spartina marshes and the geese started wintering a little bit further inland, they uh, discovered the rice prairies and particularly the rice prairies that were around Katy, Texas and Cameron Parish, Parish, Louisiana. And so the birds started mixing up a bit. So you then had a clinal distribution. Um, at the same time, people had started studying birds in the north and we found from people like Dewey Soper that on uh, Baffin, the birds were almost all blue in some places, almost all white in others. And then you had colonies like the one that I worked on at La Perouse Bay and Cape Churchill, it was about 30% blue. So the initial thought was that, well, I'll bet all the birds from La Perouse Bay go to that area right around Cameron Parish, Louisiana, which is also 30% blue. So that's where we should find all of our birds. And those colonies that were almost all white would go over to Texas and the ones that were almost all blue would go to Louisiana. So one of the first things we did was debunk that by showing that the birds actually tend to go with a tendency towards bluebirds going to the west or to the east and white birds going to the west. But geese being geese, they're always gonna pick a mate. And so in the snow goose world, and I think for most geese, there's a female natal filipatry. So the female returns to the colony from whence she came and she drags along with her whatever male she found. And because of this diffusion in the South, we wound up with bluebirds mixing in. Most of our bluebirds were from a little bit further east. Most of our white birds from a little bit farther west. But increasingly, there was a mesh, uh, a mush of it in the middle. And so the first thing that we managed to do was show that there wasn't this one-to-one -one mapping 
of colonies in the north to particular areas in the south, which became a huge concern uh, back in the 70s and early 80s when they first started thinking about snow goose populations and worried about overhunting in certain areas and would overhunting in Cameron Parish completely eliminate the colony at La Perouse Bay. And the answer to that, of course, was no, because not all the La Perouse Bay birds went there. It also meant that the birds that we have in any one of the colonies in the Arctic could come from various places in the south, or at least winter in various places in the south, which sort of puts a limitation on exactly how finely you can adapt to winter habitat because your genes are always mixing up and flowing. So that led us into a lot of studies that had to do with gene flow and the movement of birds, which was one of the mainstays of the project out of the Cape Churchill Peninsula uh, because we had this nice dimorphism and along with the marked birds, we were able to study it and see where they went, see where they didn't go. So that was one of the, the primary things that we did. The other, of course, is the traditional thing that you do with, with uh, banded birds is you can ask, estimate survival rates. So as I think everybody in North America knows, starting in the mid eighties, the snow goose population started increasing because snow geese that originally had been, been pretty much restricted to the marsh, Spartina marshes of coastal Texas and Louisiana started moving inland as they discovered those marshes were being drained to build shopping centers and golf courses and so on and so forth. And what they discovered were rice prairies. And once the snow geese got into rice prairies and agricultural lands, they thought, oh, wow, what's this? We'll move a little bit further north and you find rapeseed and a little bit further north and you find corn and so on and so forth. So now instead of being restricted to coastal areas, they pretty much winter all the way up into Nebraska where I have grand pictures sent to me of snow geese actually holding a, a, a ear of corn on the ground with one foot and chewing the kernels off. Um, so they're, they're a very adaptable bird in the sense of what they're gonna be able to eat. So as they were doing this, we started trying to figure out exactly how to control the population. And in the late 80s, we started meeting. And in the late 90s, we finally established a uh, conservation order where the idea was to kill more and more snow geese. Um, the idea initially was, well, we could spend a lot of money doing this. And fortunately, some very smart people under the sponsorship of Bruce Batt and the leadership of Bruce Batt, who's probably the only person on earth that could convince people to do this, is why don't we just let hunters do this for us because they pay us for the privilege of hunting geese. So it's not gonna cost anybody a whole lot to do this. So we started doing it. We started estimating the survival. Harvest went up, the number of dead geese went up and we all expected the survival rate would go down, right? you kill more geese, the annual survival rate should go down. So one of the things we had at La Perouse Bay was this long string of survival estimates from every year. And lo and behold, it started going the opposite direction. So instead of the survival rate going down in the face of more harvest, the survival rate was going up. And at first you thought, oh, this can't possibly work. There must be something wrong with the math. There must be something wrong with these fancy models that are coming out of Patuxent. Uh, but no, the models are correct. The models are working. But what we learned is that the harvest of snow geese was beginning to operate like a fixed number harvest. When we manage migratory waterfowl, we try to use a fixed proportionate harvest. We try to take a certain percentage 
of the population. And if you do that, you should be able to control the population. Okay. So for a given population size, you calculate the number that you need to harvest in order to get that proportion and you harvest those. But let's say you're off by a few. You harvest a few less than you planned on, maybe because there's a few more birds out there than you really thought. And what that means is that the proportionate harvest has actually gone down. And if that's the case, then under a fixed number harvest, which we reached because snow goose hunters can only or will only harvest so many snow geese, no matter how many opportunities you give them, there are only so many snow geese people are gonna hunt. Uh, the hunters in North America, both Canada and the United States are a little more ethical than just going out and killing birds for the pure fun of it. They're gonna eat what they harvest. So we had a fixed number harvest in the face of a growing population. And what that leads to is an upward spiraling of the population growth rate. So the population went from 15, around 15,000 when I began working on snow geese to around 35 to 40 million snow geese. But yet the same number were being harvested every year. So when you do that, the survival probability is gonna go up. And sadly, the survival probability is still going up. What do those numbers it's, look like? What are, what's annual survival on average today? Um, it's around 0.95. So 95% chance an adult snow goose will make it through the year. Yes. Okay. And that's up and from, what was it, low point, Rocky, just for reference? Uh, it was, when I first started, it was 70%. So there was a 30% mortality when I started, and there's a 5% mortality now. And that's in the face of um, about the same total harvest. And that's because unlike the way we normally try to manage migratory wildfowl, which, are the, which is with a fixed proportionate harvest, we're using a fixed number harvest because there's a limit. Uh, my friends in Churchill, Manitoba, the native folks up there were allowed to hunt snow geese in the spring. And a lot of the, the white folks in the community were griping at me about why can't you get us the privilege to hunt these geese as well. So when we finally got it, and the harvest wasn't going up nearly as much as we had anticipated. I talked to some of the hunters in town and I said, why aren't you harvesting more snow geese? And one of my friends told me very simply, he said, you know, I already bought a second freezer. And he said, if I walk in, this, in the door with one more dead snow goose, my wife and children will walk out the other door because you can only eat so many snow geese a year and we're not gonna kill them if we're not gonna eat them. So the problem for snow geese or the snow goose management is that they are such a successful critter that it's very, very difficult to control them once they get out of control. And I guess my pitch for it is um, if, if the federal bureaucracies had bothered to listen to the scientists back in the mid nineties, when we first sounded the alarm about the snow goose population getting away from us, then we might have been able to control it. But despite our best efforts um, with hunter harvest, we're not able to control it. The good news may be for harvest of snow geese or for the control of the snow goose population, the environment is beginning to kick in, but not in the way that people predicted. Originally folks predicted that this is a bird that lives in the coastal salt marshes and that's what they eat. Well, by the mid 80s, my late botany partner, Bob Jeffries and I had noticed that the snow geese had jumped that barrier 
and they were now uh, foraging in the freshwater marshes. And there are billions of acres of, of freshwater marsh in Canada. They've even now extended into boreal forest ponds where they eat the Carex aquatilis around the edges of the ponds. So there's a near infinite summer food supply for these guys and they just keep feeding away. So the kind of density dependence that folks were hoping for just did not kick in because as Bob Jeffries famously put it at one of the meetings, we, some of us, I, get, I think Jim was certainly there and, and I think John Eady might've been there. Um, Bob Jeffries stood up and said, the thing is that snow geese are out of control because they cheat. They really don't behave the way we thought they would because their resource becomes limited and what they do is they simply switch to a different resource. And we should have guessed that by looking at what they were doing in the winter time of shifting from Spartina marsh to gnawing off kernels of corn in Nebraska. It should not be a surprise that they're eating any graminoid that they can find in the Arctic. So that's the other thing that we've done with banding. And the, the last little fun story I wanted to relate to you has to do not with um, using the bands, but actually putting the bands on. Now, everybody that bands has all sorts of hardships and problems that you go through. I was fortunate enough to come up to Chautauqua with Jim one year and, and Mark and actually see some of the problems that you run into with trying to operate in those regions. The extra little problem that we have in the Cape Churchill Peninsula is we have the largest on-ground population of polar bears per area on the planet. And these guys start coming ashore in June. Now, in part, that's good news because they are beginning to control the population along with the grizzly bears and the black bears that have moved in thanks to climate change. So it may well be that the Cape Churchill population will start being under control, not because of hunter harvest, but because of ursid harvest. So one of the problems we have is at banding, we have a whole bunch of geese in a figure eight net closed off, whole bunch of geese, about 500 of them in there smelling and squawking. And you have polar bears roaming around over the tundra looking for things to eat. Because contrary to what some people argue that polar bears fast, they don't. They're a top-end carnivore and they continue eating anytime they can find something to put in their little mouth. So I had like, I think, I know Jim and probably Mark still involved local kids in the banding operations. And we usually have in Churchill a competition with the local science teacher who picks the best science student for the particular class. And that kid gets to come out and band snow geese with us. So the particular year in question was a young man named Liam Evans, who's, a, who's, um, who's Métis, part Cree and part white. Um, for 13 years old uh, and a very impressive six foot one. And like most 13 year olds, he was really happy banding geese for about an hour and then he got bored. And so I decided, well, I'll give Liam something to do. So I gave him a pair of binoculars and said, why don't you step across the fence and stand on that side where there's a little bit of a knoll and I can't see terribly well and just be our bear guard for us. Just watch out for bears. So I didn't think too much about it. Every once in a while, I would look over and make sure he hadn't fallen asleep or done something silly like that. When suddenly he came walking over to the net, stepped over it without any trouble, 
and walked up to me and I said, Liam, what's the matter? And he said, well, Rock, there's a bear right there. And I thought he was pointing off in the distance. No, the bear was right there. It was sniffing at the net. And so people started panicking and I'm trying to figure out what to do. Fired a few scare cartridges in the air and that just did nothing to impress this bear. He was hell bent on getting the geese. So I did the next best thing. I got one of my students and we took all of the geese we had just banded. They were in the second net because we hold them all together until we've got the whole flock done. And I dropped the net and we chased those geese out. Well, the bear saw that and started chasing the geese and having a great time smacking geese and uh, planning, I'm guessing, on coming back and eating them. And so we actually used the banded snow geese to save our bacon at the banding site from this bear that was fortunately more interested in the geese than he was in us. So that's just one of the little other adventures that we have to put up with in trying to ban these snow geese for um, the data that we try to use to manage snow goose for the snow goose hunters that are hopefully watching your podcast. Rock, you have to ask, uh, did you, you know, how did you report those banned recoveries? Um, there's actually a, a code for um, the, taken, by no, taken by predator. But the ladies at the banding office, because we submit our bands to, uh, to Canada, we submit the reports to Canada. And Louise Laurent, who's the lady there, wrote back and she said, this is really weird that you have all of these from one particular year. There has to be a story. <laughs> so I, I regaled her with the whole story. <laughs> nice. Those are great stories, Rocky. And just remind listeners, we, you couldn't tell those stories without hunters helping you with reporting no. bands. So just a reminder, please do report your bands. And uh, I, like I, just to, wanted, uh, I just wanted your audience to get a, an appreciation for some of the rather curious hardships that we go through to put those bands on. Yeah, I don't miss that dimension at all. I'm, I don't, uh, I wouldn't welcome polar bears to be part of our operations on the Yukon Delta. I think there's been one sighted out there in the, the 35 years or so that Jim worked, if I recall. We never had that um, issue um, dealing with them near my home. Well, to the extent I run into grizzly bears is, is enough, but um, yeah, it, polar bears would not be welcome. Nor are the snow geese that you sent us, by the way. You can take those back anytime you want. Now, Brant probably knows these numbers, but snow geese in Alaska over my time here have gone from almost nothing. Um, and I remember them being concerned because they were very low in number to too many already in uh, what a 30 year span. Do you know those numbers, Brand, off the top of your head? Oh, I, it's up, what, 80, 80 or 100,000 now, I believe. Um, exponential growth, really, over about the last 10 years. Yeah, I remember back in the 90s that there was proposals to try to do some predator control on Howe Island because they were hammering the snow geese. And they wanted them to. They wanted them to increase, and um, they didn't need any help. They've just done it on their own. So, uh, yeah, a new dimension. But yeah, thirty-five or forty million. I've lost track of that. I haven't kept track. I worked with Bruce Bat in the year he got that work going, and and uh, you're right. It was pretty instrumental. 
Well, thanks, Rocky. Um, uh, Brent, thanks for being patient. You're the youngest, though, by far, and we're going to make put Medjugorje go last. And when Brent starts talking, you'll see in the background, this is Minto Flats, a place that um, he has spent a lot of time and is one of my favorite places in Alaska. And, uh, you know, Brent's got some interesting stories and he's going to give us his resume, but I just want to add, Brent is the, what, the most accomplished duck waterfowl catcher that I've ever met. If you have a problem catching waterfowl, you call in Brand. He's like the hitman on this. And uh, I remember one of the years at Minto was really high water flooding and uh, he went to extreme measures to uh, attract ducks and capture them and with really high success. So you probably won't toot your own horn, but you're by far the most uh, uh, successful, accomplished duck trapper I've ever interacted with and that's includes many um so yeah what do you what do you got for us brandon all right well thanks um yeah i've been vacillating back and forth on what to talk about um i guess as far as my resume so the the work that mark was alluding to i did uh several years of research for my dissertation at minto flats that's the the background here these are bait traps full of pintails and in the fall and um, since 2011 I've been working for USGS at the Alaska Science Center and kind of left the ducks of the boreal forest behind and doing a lot more arctic goose research um, mainly in the arctic slope the north slope of Alaska looking at uh, primarily uh, climate change induced changes um, to goose populations and the landscape and habitats and then also looking at how, um, how industrial development um, does or may in the future impact wildlife and goose populations. Um, so to step back as far as the, the research that I did at Minto Flats, the, the main um, premise behind that work was looking at avian influenza and how infection in, in ducks, the natural reservoir of influenza changed throughout the season. And so what, um, what we went into this project doing is, well, we need to sample ducks throughout the whole year to know how influenza affects through the year. And so in that process, we deployed about 15,000 bands uh, over a three-year period. And I guess what one thing I just wanted to do was kind of go through the different techniques that we can use um, through the different life stages of the, the breeding season and how birds are, are captured. Because um, it's tricky in each given part, there's certain times of the year when, when um, birds are easier to capture and there's other times when it's more difficult. So um, in spring migration, birds arrive, uh, we're talking, ducks at this point, um, they get to the breeding grounds and the primary way to catch them at that point is with um, decoy trapping. And that's where we had a um, collection of, of captive wild ducks of multiple species that we maintained in a pen at camp. And we would place these birds, these females in decoy traps throughout the, the wetlands of the study area. And this allowed us to catch male ducks because it's spring and they're trying to pair with females. And we'd also catch females because these would be 
paired birds with territories that would be defending their territory, nesting territory against other females. Um, so we started with, with this and I have a little anecdote to share about that. But then as we move, so birds are there, they arrive, they're staging, they're pairing, then they go to nesting. So now we can capture them by um, finding them on their nest and trapping them on their nest. Then as the nest hatch, now you've got a whole bunch of goslings um, throughout the area, they're flightless. So the way that you can trap those is through driving them, um, pushing them, almost herding like cattle into, into pens. And that's the way a lot of the, the geese that um, Jim and Rocky were talking about how they capture the, the flightless goslings. Um, also later in the summer for, for ducks, you get a lot of the males as the females are hanging out with the broods, the males will gather in large flocks together and molt their flight feathers. They're flightless for two, three weeks and they'll hang out together. So you can also capture them through driving techniques. Um, and then as all of the, the adults and um, young goslings, as we get into August, now they're growing their flight feathers, they can fly. Then you have uh, standard techniques with bait. And when birds are interested in bait, they're a lot easier to catch. And these are uh, an example in my background picture of swimming funnel traps that you can use corn or barley um, to lure them in to, to the trap. So there's multiple different uh, techniques that, that you can use to put out the bands to ask numerous different or answer questions and that everyone else has alluded to today. And um, the one anecdote that I wanted to present, this didn't lead to any earth shattering or groundbreaking scientific discovery, but it was a, it's an individual story about an individual bird that um, is fond to me and actually to my whole crew to the point where we were able to even nickname it. Um, this is an American widgeon named Romeo that he was a, uh, a bird that didn't pair with a wild female, but he was still living the high life because he had a whole pen of female widgeon hanging out in our camp that these were the decoy hens that he didn't have any competition for. And so every single day, this bird, Romeo, would he'd start whistling from hundreds of yards down the shore, making his presence, head held high, chest out, really a proud duck for not having a mate. And he would come every day and hang out with these widgeon and all the female loved him. They'd hang out with him. And what we ended up doing was even putting traps around our pen at camp. And so this bird would come two, three times a day. We'd capture him, swab him for avian influenza, measure him, let him go. A couple hours later, he'd be back in that trap. Um, so it's fun to me just the, the sheer persistence um, and sense of pride that 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 widgeon had. <laughs> I don't know if this happened at Minto. I don't think it did, but um, at Yukon Flats, we used these decoy traps that Brent was talking about, and they, they're designed so the female is in the middle in a, in a closed pen, and then there's uh, trap doors that are open and triggered around the outside, three or four of them. Twice at Yukon Flats, we links come out the decoys, the traps are suspended over water and swam out and tried to grab the decoy head and uh, got caught in a trap. And you want to see an unhappy cat, um, a wet one in a trap was uh, 
was a good indication. But yeah. Did you catch anything weird in the traps at midnight? No, we didn't get lynx. I can't imagine trying to let a lynx out of a trap. Um, yeah. One of the most fierce things that we ever caught in a decoy trap was uh, horned grebes, man. When you open the door to let a grebe go, instead of swimming away, those things will actually come at you. That was, that was pretty fun. Yeah. But I, I still get the reports for the band recovers the birds you banded uh, now 12 years ago, some of them, 12, 13, and most of those birds from Minto go down the, the Pacific Flyway um, a lot from Washington, Oregon, California recoveries. But um, we had that one weird one that, um, could you explain that one of, uh, not long after you finished banding that we had a bird? Yeah, so this was a, a potential new record of, um, this was a, we received a recovery from Columbia for a bird that we had banded there in interior Alaska and the band corresponded with a buffalo head. So their, what, their southern range extends what, to about northern Mexico or this would have been, I believe, the first recovery of a buffalo head in South America. And um, when we received the, the report, then it was, you know, it was interesting. But as any sort of oddball uh, data point that ever comes into the bird banding lab, they send you this message. Are you sure? Please confirm your records because we don't believe you. And so I went to the, to the original field data sheets and sure enough, this we had banded a buffalo head and a blue winged teal, which are both birds that we didn't encounter all that often, and blue winged teal, which are not common in interior Alaska. Um, but they take the same size band, and we banded them next to each other. And there were specific notes on the data sheet specifying that the band numbers were correct for the birds. But given that a blue winged teal will um, be expected to, to migrate to South America and a buffalo head hasn't yet. We kind of uh, accepted defeat and, and more likely than not, we made an error on the data sheet and it was a blue wing. <laughs> that was pretty neat that the bird band lab contacted us and said, this is the first record of a buffalo head ever in, in Columbia. And it, it was complicated further by the fact that apparently waterfowl hunting is not allowed there. And the individual who shot it was a, a lawyer who was not very forthcoming of additional information. And um, we couldn't, they wouldn't help us resolve it from their end. So we were forced to go back and scrutinize banding records and, and try to figure it out. And yours, we tell Brand's probably right, it was a blue wing teal. But the chances of that are amazingly low. And uh, and the number of blueing teal I've seen in interior Alaska, you count on one hand. And I have to tell you, I don't know if I told you, Brand. My son shot a blueing teal in a at Minto um, this year, and it's the first I've ever seen harvested in interior Alaska, at least. So I thought that was pretty wild. Yeah, and at the time, people were reporting harvest of blue wings from Alaska. Um, geez, they were as far south as southeastern United States. So the, those birds early on in September were distributed across North America, basically, which was pretty amazing. What do you what do you see in, in terms of migration timing and and how fast birds geese are getting out? Some of your work from the North Slope that you now transition. Is there any antidotes there that are impressive? I I don't think people 
really appreciate how big of legs that some of these geese do in their migration. What's how how are your birds migrating? Yeah, a lot. So the the white fronts and and snow geese on the north slope, um, they based on our transmitter data, they basically fly straight east along the coast and hit the Mackenzie River mouth of the Mackenzie and take the Mackenzie down into the prairies, Alberta, Saskatchewan. And they, they're usually heading out uh, right around mid to late August, but it's about, about a three day trip. And they're, they're from the, the North slope of Alaska and they're in the prairies. And then they typically hang out there for a while before getting pushed south. That's neat. Yeah, and I'm sure you're going to learn some more from them as you continue to band. So, hey, Mark, I guess I, just yeah. uh, just a quick follow up. You know, one of the interesting things that that I think maybe folks may or may not realize. I mean, we've been banding you know ducks and geese for for decades, and it's is the value of those long term data sets as we see about changing bird distribution patterns. Rocky mentioned this. It's not just survival. It's you know, as our distributions change over time, and also their just their timing, what we call the phenology, you know, birds arriving earlier, breeding later, that type of thing. You can only get a handle on that from long-term data sets. And that's, that's where some of these banding data, you know, Jim's data on the brand, your data on the brand, the snow goose data, et cetera. Uh, and I mean, this goes back to what, I don't know, when was the first bird you banded Rocky or what's, you know, we're, we're talking well, 50 years ago, it sounds like, you know, yeah, so you've got, we've got half a century. And that's not yeah, just, that's just a single scientist. Yeah, 1969. Yeah, and it's that those long-term data. Yeah, five years of data won't get you very far. You know, it could be a hiccup or a blip or a blop, but it's those 20, 30, 40 year data sets that tell you what's going on with the populations over time, how they're changing distributions, how they're changing timing arrival, timing of departure. That's where we really start seeing the signal of, of whatever impacts climate, anthropogenic disturbance, habitat loss, all those factors. Uh, you just, there's no other way to get those data and waterfowl by far are, you know, um, because we have really good recovery data for it as well because of hunters, you know, that's just- Well, as, as I pointed out, the other thing that, I mean, it was the, the fact that the survival probabilities were going in the wrong direction, given what we thought we were doing as managers that first put us on to, oops, this isn't working right. Um, so if we hadn't had that long data set that showed it was originally 70% survival and now it's a 95% survival, um, in the face of harvest that we would have, wouldn't have, we wouldn't have finally figured out what was going wrong. Yeah, and I, just for the record, I was born by 1969. I want to go on record. Rocky <laughs> didn't start his career before I was born. I don't know if Brant can make the same claim, but... Uh, uh, just by a year or two. Just by a year or two, yeah. So, neat. that's a neat collection of stories. And again, I hope, it, hope you can appreciate um, how much we learn from you as hunters um, working with us. It's, we couldn't get this information without you. It's, uh, I didn't get into it in detail, but there's been a lot of non-hunted birds banded, um, millions. And it's just really difficult for scientists to get information on them because they don't have a network of hunters that are providing what we call citizen science data. And so um, don't target bands, but if you get one, Report it, please, because we, we need the information. So, uh, I, Mark, just, I, I, you know, one of the challenges we've had with wood ducks here in California is they're not heavily harvested. They're number one or two bird back geese, but they're not down here because they're not sort of in the rice fields. 
And I just keep wishing, I keep telling people, you know, well, we don't want to shoot them because, you know, they're nice looking birds. I said, well, if you love wood ducks, take one home, please. We're just, you know, <laughs> getting that information on those band returns is, uh, is, is incredibly helpful. So yeah, hunters, please, uh, please don't target them because that's biased, but, but please don't be shy. Yeah. I was just, uh, one little side to that, did, of the pit tag birds you've had harvested, have hunters noticed those? I'm just curious. Not, not so far. Um, there's been a challenge. Rick Kaminsky and folks have started a big uh, pit tagging effort back east on wood ducks with a bunch of folks. And uh, they actually had some some challenges with the bird banding lab. And I think they were concerned about people chowing down on a little glass, you know, pit tag. Uh, it's right. You know, we implant them just in the in the back here. And I don't know many people that are chewing down on the the scapula or the or the uh, you know <laughs> uh, you know so the, the backbone of a bird uh, so um, yeah but yeah uh, we haven't we haven't had any uh, any problems the problem with it is is the hunters don't know unless the birds we all, all the birds have bands as well but the ducklings don't you know that's the problem with ducklings is you can't put a leg band on a duckling they tried plasticine bands a while back Peter Blum did that and I think Chris has done that with uh, wood ducks in Nevada but sometimes that doesn't work so well the bands fall off or constricts the leg so. Yeah. Being able to tag ducklings and get recruitment rates, particularly if you can't catch them all, that was that was the real benefit. But but they're not banned; they don't have a leg band, so a hunter wouldn't a hunter wouldn't notice unless you had a reader. Yep, that's great, guys. I got to get going here and wrap this up. Any final thoughts? No, it's been great, Mark. It's been fun talking about this, folks. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad I split the group into two groups of four because I was reminded how we as scientists could talk and there wasn't even alcohol involved. I mean, usually this is stories we're telling over beers at a conference and that goes all night. But um, yeah. So thanks again. I really appreciate it. And um, we'll talk soon. Okay. Okay. Take care, guys. See you, everybody. Good to see you, guys. Be safe. You've been listening to the Hunting Science Podcast. To find show notes on this episode and to leave comments and continue the conversation, visit our website at community.uif.edu slash hunting science.